Claire Sands, my white audio blog. Feeling the funeral feelings. This week we've had a nationwide example of what people go through every day. On a slightly smaller level with less white feathered ghost hats and busbies marching around of course. Funerals. So as some of us sit in the aftermath of Queen Elizabeth's funeral this week, others are attending funerals or maybe have started to plan one. And I wanted to look at their value and the time after the funeral, and some of the emotions that we might be experiencing, and how to get through it. On initial examination of a funeral, you might think there are two types of people coping with the effects of it. Those that knew the deceased well, and those that didn't. And obviously the reaction in the aftermath for these people will be different. However, because my brain is just one of those that scans around a situation fairly quickly looking at potential reactions and how people might be feeling, on the initial look at a funeral... I see seven types of people affected by the ripples of it. 1. Those closest to the person that died, feeling intense emotion. 2. Those who attended the funeral but weren't close family or friends, sad but not to the extent of the family. 3. Those close to the deceased that couldn't attend the funeral through no fault of their own, i.e. they live abroad, they're unable to travel, they're too old, they're too young. Intense emotion but complicated by frustration, guilt, lack of closure maybe. 4. Those unable to attend the funeral because of their own actions, falling out with the family, being the cause of the death, etc. Very complicated emotions going on. Five, those who couldn't bring themselves to face the funeral, be it close or acquaintance. Emotion mixed with other baggage that's attached causing this response. Six, the people leading the funeral or involved with the organisation. Not as emotionally involved, but different types of funeral might be harder for them to process or closer to home for them to deal with. Seven, those that witness the funeral or the hearse as it passes them by, causing thoughts or feelings about loss, death and mortality. Plus the rest of the world who have no idea that's going on at all. Of course that's just a fairly standard funeral. There are many variations on this that have a different impact on people and depending on who died, how old they were and how they died, it varies. Were police involved? Was a crime committed? Were they nursed long term? Did they outlive most of their family and friends? Is the funeral a secret? Is the funeral a private ceremony for a life that was barely lived? And so on. The other day I was talking to Chris and I worked out I'd been to around 15 to 20 funerals. And around four of those were online during Covid. I've been to the funeral of an 8-year-old, an 18-year-old, the sudden death of a man in his 30s, the suicide of a man in his 30s, seven grandparents, a friend's dad in his 50s, and attended online funerals of a 90-year-old woman who had a great powerful single life, an older missionary woman with a big heart for other people, a man still in his prime who got cancer in his 60s, and the funeral of a mother and three of her four children after an accident. I've been to burials, cremations, services of celebration and thanksgiving, been in churches, crematoriums, and seen faith and non-faith-based goodbyes. Firstly, I want to say that before we did the podcast, I wasn't a huge fan of attending family funerals. Over the years, I've been someone that has just attended or done readings or wrote and spoke eulogies or even worked at them to help out. So I've seen them from a few different sides. But when it came to the funerals of family members, it just felt so public and mournful. Just as I was beginning to adjust to that person being gone, sometimes up to four weeks later, you have to dredge it all up again and make yourself look smart to go and be sad with lots of other people. Now, I'm sure the Britishness of all this doesn't help. There's unlikely to be many people breaking down. If they're older, it's a lot of, it's a celebration, didn't they have a good life, and for some reason I just wasn't a fan of the whole thing. I was more of the opinion it'd be better to have a private sort of goodbye and move on with things. I was wrong. 
I have learnt so much from the podcast and chatting to people about loss that I now see the immense value in traditions that allow us to say goodbye, force us to bring death out into the open and mourn. The Queen's recent funeral has once again taught me about the value of sitting with grief and mortality, seeing it, sharing it and allowing it time. The problem with funerals in this country is that we're often trying to get back to normal life before the funeral. And what we should really do is be intentionally grieving and mourning, lamenting up until the funeral, then go through the funeral as a helpful process in the goodbye. Recent events and watching our country, living with the Queen lying in state for four days, was a helpful point of reference for coming to terms with the fact that she was gone. I found myself at least once a day putting on the live feed just to watch people as they filed past her coffin, pausing briefly to bow, curtsy, salute or drop to their knees. I found it helpful, cathartic, peaceful and the deep respect fed something inside me that I feel like we've lost on a national scale. But in our day-to-day funerals, without a 24-hour guard, we've lost the ability to pause and mourn. We rush on, rushing to get back to work, to be normal, to be thankful, to get through the funeral. Even when looking for quotes about funerals and what people say about them, I found most of them were things that are read at funerals, and so many of them were trying to put a positive spin on it already about people living on through music, love, hearts, kittens. I'm pretty sure if it was Chris's funeral, I'd be sat there saying in my head, I don't want him to live on through love, I just want him here. When I heard W.H. Auden's poem, Funeral Blues, or Stop All the Clocks, in the film Four Weddings and a Funeral in 1994, yep, folks, nearly 30 years ago, there were lines in it that I knew would be regarded as morbid and defeatist by some, but I just loved them. The poem was actually written in 1936 for a play, but the film brought it back to people's attention, and it's a popular choice for funerals nowadays. It's not something I'd want at my funeral, because it doesn't offer any hope in the situation at all, but for connecting to how you might feel in the aftermath of a huge loss, I think it's beautiful. I'll put the whole poem on the blog, but these are the lines that I loved the most. Silence the pianos, and with muffled drum, bring out the coffin, let the mourners come. Let aeroplanes circle, moaning overhead, scribbling on the sky the message, he is dead. The stars are not wanted now, put out every one. Pack up the moon and dismantle the sun. Pour away the ocean and sweep up the wood. For nothing now can ever come to any good. They give me goosebumps. They feel like such a visual description of that feeling of loss when a life leaves this planet. Those moments of, what is the point in living now? We should allow people those thoughts and feelings, walk through it with them to the other side, when they are strong enough to unpack the moon, reassemble the sun, pour back the ocean and unfold the wood. And proper mourning processes, including a funeral, make allowances for such raw emotions. Now I know there'll be a whole load of people who think this sounds very dreary, hopeless, lacking in faith or celebration and depressing. And yes, it probably does. But what's wrong with that for a time? I've been at funerals that were huge celebrations for a life, even a young one taken tragically, and that's an amazing thing to witness. And if it comes off the back of the morning, then it can be such a privilege to be a part of. But if that's the approach the whole time, no one has space to grieve. No amount of you'll be reunited, they're with God, they lived a good life, they wouldn't want you to be sad, has ever helped the immediate grief of loss, no matter how true it might be. And for anyone that says this helped them from day one and they never felt the need to grieve, I doubt they dealt with it at all. How can we not grieve someone we love? How can we not stop to feel sadness at their life being ended? If ever there was a time for tears, is it not then? 
regardless of age. Early on in this podcast, I was hit by a lightning bolt, and it was some simple words that Katie Elliott said in episode two, and it was then echoed through many guests afterwards, and it was along the lines of, feel your feelings. Initially, it seemed a bit obvious, and maybe trite, but this is what she said. You're allowed to feel what you're feeling, because how many of us have got used to the idea that we should suppress things, like we should suppress anger, we should suppress our sadness, you know, just deal with it, it's not that bad. All this squashing down of things, but emotions don't just disappear because you squash them down. Even though it's counterintuitive, like actually allowing yourself to feel what you're feeling, naming what you're feeling, and being compassionate for that is incredibly powerful, but it's kind of the opposite of what most of us grow up learning to do. I realised that so often in life, I would be telling myself something that was the opposite of my feelings. This isn't your thing to be sad about. You can't get emotional over that. It's weird to be angry about that. You have all this good stuff here, be thankful. At least you don't have to... Over and over, I would use words on myself that I knew were not supposed to be used on others. Why? What if I felt sad, angry, left out, alone, disappointed, frustrated, let down, and I allowed these feelings to be felt rather than telling myself they were wrong. It suddenly seems so obvious. We don't feel feelings we're not feeling. That sounds weird, but put it this way. If you're feeling it, there's a reason. You can't manufacture feelings about something if you're not feeling them. For example, the recent episode I did on back-to-school pain. Let's say someone posts a picture on social media of their child going to school for the first time in uniform. Now that either prompts happiness, sadness, anger pride or joy etc in you or it doesn't you can't make yourself feel pain if all you have is pride for your grandchild you can't make yourself feel joy if for some reason there's a deep pain there even if you don't know why you are feeling it there's a reason that it's there and ignoring it helps no one least of all you however i will just say a couple of add-ons that i've covered in other blogs so i won't go into detail here But I'm not saying certain things would always elicit the same emotions in you. You can totally change that and it may well just naturally change over time anyway. I'm also not an advocate of always following your feelings because I think they can make you stay places that you shouldn't dwell in for too long and lead you down the wrong paths. And I'm not diminishing the hope, joy and comfort that faith brings to people because I believe it can live, and I have seen it, alongside the grief. It's just a balance. All that being said, it's good to be sad and to mourn, and funerals can be a vital stage in that process. Culturally, death is dealt with in many different ways, and most far healthier, I would say, than the British way of doing it. Some communities wash the body and cover it before placing hands on it. Some have the body on display. Some spend time at the house after the funeral and socialise and support the bereaved. Some have a period of seven days where visitors come specifically. Some end the mourning period of many days with a large feast. Mourning periods can be anything from three days to 90 days to a year. And I've wondered more recently about the value of open caskets like many countries have, about whether it's healthier to see death than to hide it away and spend days, weeks or years reciting I can't believe he or she isn't here anymore. Our tendency in this country is to hide death away and pretend it doesn't happen. Or if it does, it's very unfortunate, a failure or a mistake. We've done away with the family wearing black or people visiting the home or viewing the body at the house and I'm not sure that was wise. We now see black armbands being worn occasionally, but in the Victorian era, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, people followed Victoria's example by having big funerals, wearing mourning clothes and curtailing social engagements for a set time. In the Edwardian era after that, they would wear mourning, and there were stages of it. 
for example, for women, stage one was deep mourning, and they wore all black, dresses, veils, bonnets, the lot, no jewellery. Stage two was second mourning, a black dress, but no hat or veil. Stage three was half mourning, and other dark colours were introduced like greys or pale lavenders and jewellery. But this is the bit that gets me. How long people were actually advised to stay in these stages. For a widow, deep mourning would last one year, second mourning would last one year, half mourning would last six months. For a parent of a grown-up child, one year with a veil, gradually phasing out the other black garments over that year. For a sibling, six months to a year, gradually phasing out the black. For a young child, six months. For an infant, three months. Bearing in mind it was a different world for infant mortality back then, and the mortality rate for every thousand live births was around 160 deaths, whereas now it's nearer three. The idea of this outward mourning was that the clothes reflected the inward feelings, allowing life and society to treat you accordingly. Now tell me we haven't done ourselves a disservice by cutting this down to four weeks at best. I hate to break it to you, but you will die. And so will everyone you know. It's a fact every religion, science and theory agree on. The life that you're building on this planet has an end date and no one knows when that will be. We can theorise and try to rank deaths and work out what's best and what's worse, but it doesn't help the grief. We don't like to see parents die young and leave children, but we don't want children to die before their parents, meaning we'd prefer the child to be at the parent's funeral, but only if the parent has lived a long healthy life, and yet some people say that at any age they never got over the death of a parent. We like the idea of living in a world where everybody will live a long, happy life and all die in the order that they should. But it sets us up for a lot of confusion, hurt and complicated emotions mixed in with our grief. My generation in the UK, and the one before me, and the one after me, hasn't had to live with daily fear of death, or seeing it on the streets. So we've cloaked it, shaped it, and tried to lock away something that will always break out again. This hasn't helped us develop healthy mourning and grieving processes, and for the most part, we can't do a lot to change that. But funerals are one part of the process that we all still have on the whole. So they're an important stage in the processing of all we are feeling, the full range of emotions, not just sadness, but anger, frustration, disappointment or guilt. I recently spoke to a funeral celebrant called Evelyn based in Australia on one of my Let's Chat episodes. This is what she said. I have met people that said, you know what, we didn't have a funeral because my dad didn't want one. But the truth is the funeral is for the living, not the dead. Funerals are for the living, not the dead. When you think about this, it's very obvious. The dead person gets nothing from a funeral. It's those that are left behind that benefit from the goodbye, the memorials, the eulogies, the music, the flowers. And funerals can be incredibly hard. They remind us of death, loss, grief. They remind us of priorities. Suddenly just being alive feels valuable. Death is the ultimate levelling of the playing field. As we saw this week, right now, you and I are more blessed than the Queen of England. We have life, air in our lungs. She's left, and nothing she owned has gone with her. We enter this life with nothing, we leave with nothing. We get one shot at life, and funerals bring that smack in front of us, and we ponder how we're living it, and that's not always fun or helpful. Then, after the funeral, as close family or friends, we're left with new emotions. As everyone else starts to return to their normal lives, we're left realising that our normal has gone, changed forever. Ahead of us is a blank canvas. All our plans, thoughts, routines, commitments have changed or gone. Nothing will be the same as it was because something is missing. Grief can feel very lonely because only you will mourn your loss. 
Others will do it their way, but each grief is specific to us because we lost something different. No two siblings or parents or friends feel the same loss over the same person. And so life starts to move on and it's hard. Scary at times. We certainly don't want to go through the loss again. But there's almost the feeling of wanting to go back to the safety net of those early days when there were people around you. Nothing to think about. When someone stopped the merry-go-round and all the focus was on your missing person. But now the ride has started again and you find yourself in the way. And you just want things to pause for a bit longer. So what can you do in these early days to survive? Well, there'll be a lot of things that are specific to different people, but I've got a few tips to help you get through when your own brain seems to have shut down. And before I share them, I just want to say that it's okay to mourn for someone that you have never met. It might be confusing, but national events like the Queen's funeral can bring up emotions about losses in our own lives or cause us to feel empathy for those who are going through it. After all, if you have those feelings, feel them. Who is anyone else to say you can't? Losses take many different shapes, and my experience of childlessness was, and is, a confusing loss of someone or some people I never met, never existed. It's the loss of an invisible something I never had. Confusing.com But I've learned. Feel those feelings. So here's my top tips to get you through the early days. 1. Continue grieving. The grieving does not stop because the funeral did. It will continue. It will change size. It might never fully leave. And that's okay. It will alter, shift, ebb and flow. And you'll find you grow around it. Eventually. 2. Don't rush things. If you can take time before you return to work and commitments, do it. Give yourself space before you jump back on the treadmill of life, even if you don't think you need it. 3. Say yes as much as you can. A good family member of mine said that someone told her after her husband died to say yes to every invitation to coffee, even though she won't want to. So she did and she said it was the best thing she'd done. Firstly, it gradually gets you out into the world again with people who care about you and aren't afraid to be this close to your loss. And secondly, those coffee invites might not always be there. People will only ask so many times before they stop. Four, find simple tasks you can do to help you focus, like writing thank you cards or notes to people that you're grateful for. Five, be honest with other people. Talk about your grief, share your emotions, talk about who you lost with those that invite you to do this. Six, don't push people away. You might want to, and it's a lot harder to let people in, but fight against that and let them in. Obviously, make sure it's the right people and there's some wisdom and trial and error involved in that. Seven, slowly start new traditions. So the anniversaries and the birthdays and the yearly reminders aren't just filled with pain. Find ways to remember your loved one in a way that you will look forward to amidst the pain. 8. Be kind to yourself. Don't speak words over yourself that you wouldn't say to someone else in the same position. For many areas of your life, the real grieving starts now, when life goes back to normal and it's littered with holes that you will only start to spot now. So go easy on yourself. You're establishing a new routine. You're dealing with a new you. You're navigating a different life. Give yourself grace. Let's not be too quick to dismiss the grieving process and the time before, during and after funerals. Let's be intentional about our own funeral planning and what we choose for our loved ones. It's okay to still not like funerals, they're not fun. Nothing healthy really is, is it? But just as we need to eat the occasional piece of fruit, we need to remember the importance of these events in our own grieving journeys. One of my favourite couple of lines about death and a funeral is in the film About Time, when the mum, whose husband is dying, answers the door to her son and he asks her how she is. She replies with, Honestly, I'm f***ing furious. I am so uninterested in a life without your father. 
Let's make some tea. I just love the honesty of this. Then, as they are leaving to attend the funeral, the mum asks a room full of her children and relatives, Right, are we ready for this? And the kooky uncle replies, Course we're not. Hateful day. Honesty is helpful when it comes to our feelings, but there's something else we have to remember. To have feelings, we have to be alive. And that is a privilege that not everyone gets for as long as we have. So amidst all the pain, the grief, the sadness, the heartache, it's important to remember, when we resurface, that life itself is a miracle, and it's to be cherished for as long as we have it. The closing words of that film say this, We're all travelling through time together, every day of our lives. All we can do is do our best to relish this remarkable ride. Ride.